Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The big game is finally here as we hit Super Sunday with the last game of the football season. As always, BetOnline has you covered. From odds, scores, totals, player performance props to where the next coach fired is going to land, BetOnline is the number one spot for all things NFL betting in 2022. And it's not just football. BetOnline's basketball, hockey, boxing, and UFC odds coverage is the best in the business. From sports right down to your favorite Vegas casino games, BetOnline is your number one online wagering destination. Head to BetOnline today or use your mobile device to sign up and receive your 50% off welcome bonus on your first deposit. Use our promo code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V, to get you started. The fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports and play your favorite games. BetOnline, where the game starts. All right, basketball fans, welcome into Ball Movement. I think for the podcast here, we're going to try to focus on just the journey of basketball players and, and pick the name Ball Movement for a couple of reasons here, mostly just because one, Ball Movement is a staple for, for overseas basketball. It's a little less isolation heavy, but also, you know, the people that play overseas, they have to move around for basketball. And, and that is their own sort of type of ball movement. And my co-host for this, Mike Kreppi, is somebody that actually lived that life and, and can speak to that maybe better than just about anybody. So, Mike, I'm, I'm excited to be doing this with you. No, I'm excited as well, Matt. Thanks for the introduction and, and inviting me to do this with you because um, this is an industry, like you alluded to, that a lot of people are curious about, they hear about, but they don't know the specific details and what it entails to actually live the nomadic overseas basketball life. Yeah, and to your point, you know, I'm I'm indicative of this. I am I am synonymous with this industry every year. Um, I've never played for the same team back to back. So I've changed, I've changed teams every year for 10 years. So when, and by changing teams, I mean, changing countries. Right. So picking up and leaving, sometimes going to two countries in one season. Um, but we'll get into that as we go through the interview, but, um, it's just a, it's a lifestyle that's very unique and it's, it's honestly what you make it, but we'll, we'll get into that throughout um, not only this interview, but the interviews to come, because we'll be inviting a lot of guests that have all unique perspectives. And it's something that I'm very passionate about and that I think will be interesting to a lot of not only basketball fans, but just humans. You know, it's a human interest, you know, industry because people travel, people live abroad and they live abroad for different reasons. Just the basketball aspect is very unique. There are 450 guys in the NBA and they get a tremendous amount of media coverage and and rightfully so, you know, they are the best group of guys in the world, but, but there's a whole other tier of players that are just as good that maybe they didn't get the right opportunity or bad break, bad timing, all these kinds of things. And, you know, they don't have the million dollar contracts and, and easy stability of life and things like that. And I think it makes those stories even more compelling. Uh, I cover yeah. the Washington Wizards primarily, and I've always sort of been interested in, all right, here are the guys in the G League. You know, here are the guys that are fighting to make training camps and summer leagues. And 
you know, there's there's not those kind of opportunities for for folks at the NBA level. So where do those people go? And and I think we want to be able to shed light on people and give them a platform, you know, to tell their story, where they ended up, why they ended up there, what that's meant for them. And I, I hope that this is something that's valuable for those players, but also future, you know, future generations of overseas players. And they can learn some lessons that, you know, you guys didn't have somebody telling you as you embarked on that kind of journey. So, Matt, to your point, um, there's a huge, huge misconception that if you're not playing in the NBA, somehow you're playing some type of semi-pro basketball. Right. I've literally heard people ask me, is that semi-pro? Um, and I'm thinking they have no idea. Yeah. There are guys making upwards of seven figures tax-free overseas, you know, like literally. And expenses are mostly covered, you know. Expenses are 100% covered. Your housing, your your insurance, your your flights. Um, A lot of times now in the more modern contracts for overseas basketball players, they're getting meals in their contract from sponsors that are restaurants. Mm -hmm. So you can save a lot of money and you get to travel the world doing what you love on somebody else's dime. There are a lot of perks to it, but to your point, I'm hoping this can open people's minds to make them more aware of what it is to play basketball overseas for men and women, because we're going to be interviewing women as well. And it's not just um, a male dominated industry. It's like the women actually go over in, in bigger groups than the men because they have to go because they get paid more to the WNBA, but we'll get into that on later episodes. But that's one thing I really hope that this does, you know, and uh, we have a one-liner on with Vindicated Sports, which I'll explain what that is later, where there's a misconception that playing basketball in the NBA is the only way that you can make a living playing basketball. And we're going to dispel that myth. Essentially, what we want to do with this podcast is to open people's minds to our listening and future viewing audience to exactly what it entails to play overseas, you know, dispel some of these myths, you know, that, that you can only make a living playing basketball in the NBA and to showcase a lot of these guys who the fans of this podcast will recognize the names and we're going to be updating them on, you know, where they are, their journey to where they are and what got them there and their stories, because we will be interviewing them. They will be joining this podcast on future episodes. So, you know, that's, that's one thing that I'm really from a mission standpoint that this podcast does is, to really give insight and then to your point, Matt, where up and coming players, aspiring players, high school, grassroots, college, they start to consider overseas as a viable option for themselves. Because to be honest, there's some players that are a lot more open minded. And you saw like guys like Josh Childress, who stopped his NBA career early. He went to Greece and then he went to Australia and some guys are just more like worldly in terms of wanting to know more about the world and why not utilize basketball as a catalyst to, to do that. So, you know, there, there are a lot of reasons why guys go overseas. It's not just, oh, they got a bad break or they just didn't have the opportunity. There's really not a lot of difference between skill level from players that are go. And nowadays, especially in the last five years, you see a lot of turnaround mm-hmm. with guys who aren't fighting for the NBA careers as much as they used to in past years. And they're going right overseas because they understand they can become a star over there. They can have better endorsements. They can have, you know, more salary, more job stability in some aspects. Um, and so, you know, it's just, um, it's just, it's just a very interesting, unique industry. You used to almost never see guys come back. Like if you went overseas, yeah. you were an overseas player. And we mm-hmm. see a lot of that now where 
guys go over two, three years and they showed that they worked on the things that, you know, NBA GM showed them they need to work on. And, and we can get a couple of those guys on here too, just to talk about what that transition back and forth was like. And, and I think that's one of the things that, that got me really interested in doing this in the first place is, you know, I, I talked to a couple players and we'll save them for, for guests maybe. So I won't throw out names at, at this mm-hmm. point, but guys that said, you know, they went from being an NBA player, a big time, you know, power five college player. And then they felt almost forgotten overseas and, and what that was like for them from a mental standpoint, especially during the pandemic where you couldn't bring family in, Yeah, you, you know, that aspect of it, I, I think is really intriguing. And, and I think it's important that mental health be destigmatized uh, with sports. And, and I think this especially applies to the group of guys that, that we're talking about. So um, hopefully that's some kind of stuff we can get into on this show too. 100%. This is going to be an open forum. So we're going to cover this, this literally endless content about overseas basketball because it's literally little to no coverage of it. And so we have, we have an open book. We have a open canvas here to do our artistry and it's going to be, it's going to be fun. And I think people are going to really like this. As I mentioned, Mike, you're especially well-suited to talk about this particular topic because you were a 10-year overseas pro. You played in England, Denmark, Greece, Spain, Portugal, Czech Republic, China, Germany. I mean, you hit most of the major, you know, basketball playing countries that that have good leagues and, and have kind of broad experiences there. But you also run Vindicated Sports. It's an international basketball consulting firm. And you wrote Vindicated Sports Presents, the guideline to a successful basketball career overseas. So this is literally the guy who wrote the book on the subject here to, to talk to this. So I, I think we're uh, we're in good shape here. No, hundred percent. You know, I, I I'll get into my background a little bit. You know, I'm from Silver Spring, Maryland. Um, went to Good Council High School, Blake High School. Pretty pretty notable uh, schools there, basketball wise, in the mid to late 2000s. I attended UC Riverside, University of California Riverside. I went out west, played in the Big West, and Started my pro career shortly after. And, you know, my my journey to professional basketball is a really unique one, as most of our guests will say. But um, I actually went a route that is not conventional at all. So just to give some insight to to the viewers and the listeners who don't understand about, you know, one of the questions I always get is how do you get recruited or how do you get scouted to even play overseas? How do these teams even know about you being that they're in a whole nother continent? And this is kind of like pre-internet too. I mean, not pre-internet, yeah. but you know what I mean? Like it's not the same pre-social, as it is now. It's pre-social media, hundred exactly. percent. Like Facebook was, was relevant. I remember Instagram, my second year was just becoming relevant. Mm-hmm. So conventionally you play in college, you play well, um, you go through the draft process, you don't get drafted. Then, you know, they had Portsmouth Invitational and, you know, these pre-draft camps where a lot of the big time overseas Scouts will come out or they have American partners here where they communicate um, to say, hey, look at this player. This player would be good for your league based on their past business together. And that's how you get recruited. And so for me, I got in a really bad car accident. I was a passenger in a fatal car accident in college my junior year. My teammate who was driving died. Another girl who was a passenger, she died as well. That's awful. And so, yeah, no, I, I'm I'm fortunate and blessed um, by the grace of God to even be alive, let alone to be able to play basketball after that. But because of that, I didn't get into the rotation until conference play of my senior year. And so I was put in a category that I never thought I would be in. In high school, I was one of the best guards in my county. 
it, it was a foregone conclusion that I was going to play ball in college. It wasn't if I was going to college, it's where I, where was I going to go. And so to, to go from that mindset to now the mindset of I'm not playing, I'm sitting on the bench, and I'm in this position of guys that I never thought I would be linked with. And so my mindset had to change. It actually made me more suited to play overseas because my work ethic increased. Um, I was always disciplined um, to this day. I've never had a drink a day in my life um, just because I was that committed to the game of basketball. And I thought that would detract me from where I was trying to go. But that period of time, it really taught me how to be resolute. It taught me how to be resilient. It, it, It gave me more understanding and compassion because prior to that, if I thought somebody wasn't playing, I immediately thought, oh, they didn't work hard. Or uh, there's a reason why they're sitting on the bench. And it opens your mind. I mean, like, yeah, yeah, it seriously did. And so um, I had to fight. I had to really fight for my career. Um, Now, with that being said, I was in a privileged position to fight. And I always make that a point when I do interviews and when I speak, because a lot of guys that are in basketball, they're, you know, first generation. They're going to be first generation college students, Mm -hmm. first generation students. athletes and then that comes with first generation money but for me my father's a federal judge he was the first black chief immigration judge in the history of the united states my mother in her own right is very remarkable she's an english professor and public speaking professor and she's she, she's the true hustler in our family she she started a catering business where she makes wedding cakes mm-hmm. um she does an assortment of things that you know really run our family so with that being said, you know, I had the resources and things like that to be able to pursue this. But you also had good um, examples of of work ethic, you know, like yeah. people to follow too. A hundred percent. And I saw my parents, they didn't use their position of influence to look down on people and things like that. They're literally the most humble people ever. And I saw that and, you know, I always made it a point and a promise to God that if I was ever in that position, that I would do the same. You know, I wouldn't look down on people. I would, you know, open up my network to help them out. So going back, I didn't get a lot of playing time in college. Um, I got into the rotation um, conference play in my senior year. So I was left with those stats. And mm-hmm. one thing people need to learn about overseas basketball, it's nothing to do with your game. You know, it has everything to do with your profile and your resume, mm-hmm. basically your, your stats. Whatever stats you put up in college, that is what you're going to be evaluated with. And so and a lot of players need to understand that, too, because a lot of times they'll be in these training groups. And they'll be training with guys who get drafted, training with guys who are veterans overseas, and they're holding their own, rightfully mm-hmm. so. So they're thinking, well, I'm on their level. I just beat him the other day in ones, or we just played pickup, and I was one of the best players out there. Why shouldn't I expect what they're getting? And you're two different people when you're getting recruited. So the way people evaluate teams, scouts, GMs, how they evaluate players is very robotic. They look at where you play. They look at what you did when you played, and that's it, you know. And then, then the film supplements. The film supplements what the stats say. So now they're looking at the stats. They look at where you played. Okay, now let me see if he fits into our system, or or she fits into our system. So, and please, female listeners, um, forgive me if I say he a lot. I am a man, yeah, so speaking I'm speaking to personal be, experience. There, I'm speaking to personal experience, but I'm not neglecting you guys at all. So, so my, my route was different. I had to, I, I sent out hundreds of emails. This is before social media with Facebook to and agents things like that. Or, or teams or both. 
I mean, a lot of it was was to agents that, you know, somebody would refer me to or mm-hmm. things like that. But a lot of it was going on. Eurobasket was the, the platform at the time to really get information about overseas basketball. So I would go there, find the coaches' names or find the email address. They used to have email addresses on the on the website. And then I'll just I would go in the gym, I would work out, and then I would have my laptop in the gym and I would send out emails right after the workout. And that's another thing players need to understand too, is that if you're trying to get a job overseas, you just being in the gym isn't enough because you're just going to be in shape. You have to expose yourself. You have to put yourself out there and let people know who you are and what you're doing. So, you know, because of my stats, you know, I understood I was real with myself and that's, I'm going to constantly be talking and teaching at the same time while we do this podcast. So when you're the underdog, when you're underestimated, when you're overlooked, you have to be real with yourself about where you are on the market. And that was one thing that I understood early on. And that I'm can like, be tough for athletes no, to no. do. I mean, that, that's that's not sort of the first thing people expect is, you know, uh, uh, you have to have extra level sense aware, you know, self-awareness, I think. A hundred percent. And so for me, I was always real with myself, even as a player. Like I wasn't the type of player that blamed the coach or blamed somebody else for my mistakes. I'm looking back saying, all right, what do I need to do to correct this? I'm watching film. My dad was really good growing up of filming all of my games. So like he, I don't think he missed the game. As busy as his schedule was, he was always there with the camcorder. And all my former teammates, they laugh about it now because during the quarantine, I went back home and he has boxes of tapes. And so I will, I will be posting the clips about guys that we'll, that we'll probably be interviewing on here who have a lot of success now. But my dad has tapes of them when they're 10, 11, 12, 13. <laughs> Awesome. And and it, and it's interesting, but I was always real with myself. So I understood, okay, one, I needed to transition to, to be a point guard. So I took a year off from graduating at UC Riverside to transition to being a point guard. And then two, I knew I had to go to different camps and showcases where the coaches would be. Now, I didn't have, my parents didn't have the guidance. They didn't know I was the first one. I didn't know. So we spent a lot of money going to camps that turned out to be money grabs. They mm-hmm. they were disingenuous. And I learned along the way how to weed out those and vet those um, showcases, in, which I documented in my book, which is also available on Apple and Amazon.com. So, yeah. So for me, I had to take the long road. I had to take the, the road less traveled. It was it was tough, but I loved it so much that looking back, I don't know how I did it now because it was so many camps. There were so many trials I went to. I went to semi-pro trials in the States just to keep myself active. Mm-hmm. And I, that's one thing that I would implore to anybody. And it's a life lesson in general. It's universal. But specifically for basketball is the worst thing you can do is be stagnant and stop because that going back to what you were talking about with mental health, you allow doubt, you allow distractions, you allow all of these things to come into your mind, which can play on your your progress. And for me, I was always staying in the gym, staying in the gym, staying in the gym. Even at UC Riverside when I wasn't playing, I would go play with the intramural guys in the rec center. I would go work out. Basketball is such a big confidence sport. I mean, life is in general, but but basketball, especially like you need to be playing to keep your confidence up too. Exactly, because, you know, a lot of guys, you know, they allow the coaches to get in their head, especially when they get to college. Mm-hmm. And for me, of course, I would listen to my coach. But at the same time, I was stubborn and arrogant in a very positive way because when the coach would say something to me like, don't shoot the ball, the first thing that came into my mind was, I've been shooting jump shots long before I met you. 
So I'm not going to allow you to tell me what I cannot do. You know, now it's up to me to prove myself right. And it was in this apropos that I named my company Vindicated Sports, because if anybody knows the definition of vindicated, it's to loosely translate it is to prove yourself right. It's to be proven right, to validate yourself. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it takes a special type of person to step out there, especially like my coach in college, my senior year, he came from the Chicago Bulls. He was with Kansas State. So he was a guy that had some, some, he was a reputable guy, mm-hmm. but I knew who I was. You know, and I wasn't going to allow him to dictate or have the power to dictate my career. So I ended up getting dual citizenship. I ended up getting dual citizenship through a casual conversation with my mother. My mother is from the Caribbean. She's from Guyana. I'm born in Montserrat, raised in Guyana. And so it's a territory. Montserrat is a territory of the United Kingdom. And so because of that, I and I get birthright citizenship because she had the citizenship. And that proved to be a lifesaver in terms of my basketball career, because now just to give you some give their listeners some context, there's there's a small amount of players imports that, as they call them that each country is allowed per team. So some is that changed by league by country? I oh mean, yeah, does yeah, everywhere do that. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. There's always a quota. There's always a limit. So coming up, what I used to hear was, you know, I've been playing for 10 years, but even prior to that, it was always two, two mm-hmm. Americans per team. As I started getting to, you know, my third, fourth, fifth year, you know, my team in Greece, we had five imports on the team. Mm-hmm. But what that did for me was because Britain, England, and United Kingdom w- was in the EU at the time, I was counted as a European citizen. So I can play in any European Union country around the world and not count against the quota. So they're getting an American player but I don't take up a spot for free. I don't take up a spot for an American player. Now, obviously, I wasn't playing for free. Let's make that clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I meant it doesn't count toward the, uh, yeah. the quota there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. But um, so getting that passport really opened up a lot of doors because before I was just banging my head, banging on the door, mm-hmm. like somebody just give me a shot. You know, I'll come for a trial to work out. So I ended up talking to somebody, a guy that I actually played against in high school. He was doing some nonprofit work in Ireland, in Belfast. Mm -hmm. And so he was playing on a semi-pro team. He played in college, um, Brandon Giles. I give him a shout out. Brandon Giles, he he went to Magruder High School um, in Montgomery County, ended up going to Longwood University. Um, Very good guard in his own right. But he was doing some nonprofit work. And I think we talked on Facebook and he was telling me that he was playing on his semi-pro team over there and that, you know, I I can come over there. He was in a shared house. There was a room available. And so I talked to the people that were organizing everything over there and they said I could come and I could train with the Belfast stars of the Super League in Ireland. So, you know, I packed all my stuff. I went out there, um, overpacked because nobody told me what to expect. So I took my whole house. I ended up paying $600 in bag fees. Like it was insane. And so, um, so I'm over there. My dad gave me three months worth of money. He's been, you know, drilling this law school speech down my throat since I can remember and so I told him, this is just, this is what I love. This is what I'm going to pursue. So he said, you know, he, he was fair. He gave me three months worth of money. He said, go out there. And if, if it works, cool. If not, come back and, and let's get, let's get real in his opinion. 
Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, I went out there. Obviously, I had no plans of coming back. And, you know, but you bet on yourself, though, and he bet on you, too. That's awesome. Well, 100 percent. But it, but I was real with myself. The training that I put in, shout out to my trainer. He's one of the best trainers in the country, if not the world. But he's based in Montgomery County, Myron Flowers. Um, his, his company's called 360 Fit. Um, he trains a lot of high level NFL and professional basketball players. Some of his notable clients are Stephon Diggs, Trayvon Diggs. Um, Vernon Davis, Monte Davis, um, uh, DeQuell Jackson, you know, he, we train everybody. A lot of Terps that, on there. A lot, a lot of Terps, obviously, because he's from Maryland um, and things like that. So, but anyway, the training that we did, I knew I was prepared for anything mm-hmm. that I would face. So I, all I needed to do was be in front of the right people. So I had a guy named Noam Fishman. Noam was, he's a, he's a, he's a certified agent. But he wasn't representing me at the time. He was just giving me guidance and he gave me a lot of good advice. And he ended up setting up three. He got me in contact with three teams in the United Kingdom BBL and England BBL, which is the top league in England. And so while I was in Ireland, I got those workouts confirmed by being out there. I followed up with the teams. It was the Worcester Wolves, the Leicester Riders and a team which is now known as the Surrey Surrey Heat. They they, They went by a different name back then. Um, so I had three workouts and no one, no one basically told me the first team that offers you don't negotiate the money, just take it, Mm. play, and then move on from there. So I left, I took a flight to, from Ireland to England, had to take a train to Worcester, which was the first workout. And my mom is telling me, you know, she's obviously just being a mother, being cautious. Why are you taking all of your stuff? You might need to come back. I took all of my stuff from that house in Ireland because I had no play. That was the mentality I had at the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's going to be indicative of anybody that's playing ball overseas or trying to do something that there's only a handful of jobs overseas, just like the NBA. You spoke to it, there are 450 jobs in the NBA, but there are only a handful of jobs overseas as well because there are only a certain number of Americans sure. or imports. And you're not just talking about Americans. Mm-hmm. There are other imports that are considered. So there might be Australians. There might be Africans, you know, that are all considered imports in certain countries. So um, and I didn't realize that at the time. It just you know, what, what odds I was up against. I was just going with what God put in me. Um, I'm a huge man of faith. So, you know, I was just doing my part. You know, faith without works is dead, you know, says it in the Bible. So I prepared. I went to the first workout. I killed it. I maybe missed two shots the whole workout. And so it had to and I had to had to work out immediately off the train. I remember I, all I had was a Kit Kat. I had no go. food. I had a Kit Kat. And so I had to sugar train rush. right off the sugar rush. You know, but my adrenaline was going. This is what I've been training and wanting. So, you know, I didn't have time to be tired. And a lot of times, you know, younger players, I hear them say, oh, I had a bad first game because I was jet lag and I wasn't ready. You don't have the luxury to do that, mm-hmm. you know, because they'll send, like, and we'll get, we'll get into why they don't have the luxury to do that. But, I had to practice right after that workout with the team. And then the second day they offered me a contract. So I didn't even take the other two workouts. Now in hindsight, Lester Riders, they ended up becoming a Euro cup team and becoming a really big team, not only in England, but in European basketball. So, but hindsight is 2020, you know, Monday morning quarterback type of vibe. So I, I was cool with my decision. And that first year in Worcester was my first year ever playing point guard. And I have like, you know, Sky Sports is the sports um, company. I mean, sports network out there. Yeah. And so there was a game we were playing the Newcastle Eagles 
and the commentator is saying that it looked like I've been playing the point guard position my whole life. And they had no clue. Yeah, they had no clue that was the first year. And I made a post about it that resonated with a lot of people on my Instagram. That was my first year ever playing full-time point guard. I never felt comfortable playing point guard, but I wanted to be a professional so badly that I was comfortable being uncomfortable and I trained. You know, I was real myself. I used to study Chauncey Billups. I studied Chris Paul, you know, guys that can score, but also set the table and, and playmate. And, you know, especially Chauncey, you know, he was a big guard. He can shoot. He was strong, you know, and he also ran the show for a championship team. So, you know, I use those guys in my barometer. I studied them back then. We had portable DVD players. And so, you know, there was no like YouTube. I mean, YouTube was popping, but we didn't have. You like, weren't watching game on your phone. Uh, yeah, we, you know, weren't, train we, weren't doing, we weren't doing any of that, you know. And so, you know, that was kind of like my my genesis, my start to overseas basketball that first year was was really eye-opening for me um i'm a student of the game so i'm very detailed and we had a playbook like it was thick we had we had four or five plays for every type of defense but i loved it because i'm not a street ball guy i didn't grow up playing and, you know i played in the parks and stuff like that but i grew up i went to camp every summer um i learned to play the game the technical way so playing in europe the way to our to our title for our, our podcast ball movement that's how I grew up playing. I was in an isolation one-on-one guy. I just started getting bag work right now. Like my bag just started getting deep as I became a pro, like a seasoned pro. But before then, I was very basic, get to my spots, similar to what Kevin Durant said. He said, I'm a very cliche basketball player. I'm boring. If people really watch me play, he gets to his spots. He doesn't do a lot of flash, but he does it so efficiently that, you know, it resonates with a lot of people. So I mastered that playbook. I knew where all my teammates were supposed to be. And long story short, I ended up being top 10 in assists that year. Um, had some had some other offers to play in the UK BBL, but my mind has always been on more, going to the next level, trying to see. Because my goal wasn't – I never started playing basketball to make money. Obviously, like I said before, I came from a privileged position where I can follow my passion and pursue my passion. And I wanted to just to see how high I could get, you know, the highest level I can get. So I had offers from the London Lions who are in the in the Euro Cup now. But at the time, they offered me, you know, a, a low salary. But, you know, in hindsight, I thought I probably should have taken that deal because I'm a UK citizen. And if you do anything in a market like London, somewhere that's big like that, then you can get endorsements and make that money mm-hmm. up, kind of like playing in L.A. or playing in Chicago, New York. So but. My mind wasn't there at the time as it is now. I was all basketball, only basketball. I didn't you even didn't have to anybody to guide you and tell you those yeah. things. You had to learn for yourself. No, hundred percent. And you know, I didn't. Even, I was so focused that I literally lived an hour and a half by train from London. I didn't go one time my first year in the UK. I didn't go one time. So, um, so yeah, you know, just to, uh, that's just that was the that was my start. Um. And kind of what I'm doing now with Vindicated Sports, it, it ties into the start because I was around a lot of notable players um, from the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area that played overseas that I was training with. Mm-hmm. Like I trained with these guys. They saw me from the age of 18 all the way to I finished school. And these guys were still playing. Some of them are coaches now. Um, I'm not going to say any names, but in my opinion, they didn't really give me the game like I thought they should have, being that they saw me every summer. It wasn't like some guy that's just some kid, arrogant kid coming in, asking for a handout or he wasn't putting in. I was putting in just as much, if not more work than them because I was hungry. I was trying to outdo them. 
you know, and they didn't really give me the game as I thought they should have. And so I always made it a point, like I said before, that if I was ever in that position, that would never be me. Like, so, so it actually was a blessing in disguise because I don't think that was never a motivation for me. Hmm. I never wanted to be an educator, but my mom says like, we come from a family of educators. My grandfather was an educator. My aunt's an educator. You know, she's an educator. So I'm just educating through basketball. You hit on a couple huge things there that that we want to make like major themes of the show. And, mm. and, and that last one specifically is, like you said, there are limited jobs and guys feel like they're competing against other people for these jobs. They don't want to give them tips that are a leg up that could, you know, that could cost them money down the road. And, and I think- yeah we can do that for them, um, you know, the things that they might not get elsewhere. And hopefully that's something that's gotten better over time. And, and, you know, people have learned those tips, but, you know, what if you don't have access to somebody that is a good mentor or has walked that same path that they can give you some stuff. And you come uh, to vindicated sports. That's what we're here. We're, we're the big brother. We're the big homie. We're the OG. However you want to classify us. That's what we do. You know, you come to us, We'll give you the guidance, you know, and like I, I tell people all the time, I'm an open book, you know, message me. I'll never say you're annoying me. You're bothering me, you know, because this because I know what it's like to be in their shoes. Uh, you talked about sort of making, you know, steps up. Right. So mm-hmm. I think that's sort of the thing for folks that maybe you don't have a lot of awareness of if you don't watch European basketball. But these leagues are sort of um, tiered like there's a ladder to it. Right. There's uh, yeah. Even some of maybe his perception of this league is better, but, you know, it it may not actually be that big a difference. But a lot of this is you talked about you have to make a strong first impression. You have to put up stats and you do that to parlay that into the next job and move up a run. Or if you don't do well, maybe you stay put or even have to go down a a level for a year or two to kind of reprove yourself. What's that like as you as you realize that? you know, your results are tied to what your next job looks like, really. That, that is a great question, Matt. And, you know, I, I'm interested to hear our other guests about their opinions as well. But um, an, um, another misconception about this industry is that people, especially players, they look at it as if it's not a business. It's literally a business in mm-hmm. every sense of the word. It's a corporation. Um, FIBA is the governing body, but it's a corporation in itself. And you are a corporation um to be honest and in any corporation you don't start off as a ceo you know a lot of times unless you founded the company you know you have to work your way up and so a lot of players then they don't understand that concept like you're just starting out this is your first year so you might have to take a proverbial l on your salary to play in a top league because they're they're going to take advantage of you just like any other business you know that they have what you need they know that you need it. They know you're desperate to start your career and they know that their league is respected. So you, if you get a deal to your point, like the, the different tiers. So just to give some clarity, the best basketball leagues in Europe, let's just st- talk about Europe right now. Germany, BBL, top league, France, Pro A. You have Greece, A1. You have Spain, Liga Endesa, formerly known as the ACB. Um, you have Turkey. Turkey BSL, right? These leagues are widely regarded as the top leagues, you know, across the board outside of the NBA. So these are leagues that you'll primarily see a lot of former NBA players playing in within Europe. Um, they're, they're mostly playing in Euro League or Euro Cup. 
Um, so you got these, you got to break that down for folks because I think that's another one okay, that people yeah, really don't have a lot of insight into how the different um, sort of pool plays work, where where you're pooling from other countries yeah. together. So the Euro League is pound for pound the best league outside of the NBA. Um, this this league usually has the best teams from the from the best countries in Europe. So I think Greece has Greece has two. I don't want to get into numbers because I don't want to make any mistakes, but there are multiple countries. Like Greece has multiple EuroLeague teams. Spain has multiple EuroLeague teams. France has multiple EuroLeague teams. Turkey has multiple EuroLeague teams. But, you know, the more I got into it, I used to wonder, you know, what made a team a EuroLeague team? And it's actually very simple. It comes down to money. Mm -hmm. You buy your way into the EuroLeague. So if you have the money to buy your way into the EuroLeague, nine times out of 10, you have the money to pay the top players. Mm -hmm. So, and, and that's how it works. So and then there's then then there's the Euro Cup, you know, you buy your way into the Euro Cup, same same situation. Then there's the uh, Euro Challenge. Then they have the Champions League. Um, so all of these are international competitions that have teams from different countries competing in different pools. And then it all culminates similar to the NCAA tournament with the Final Four and then a championship. So it, um, it's not just like. I have to worry about what league I'm in, in, in terms of country, but I now have to worry about where the team is in terms of what international competition that they're in. And, and that determines how much additional coverage and, uh, you know, uh, press you get. No, a hundred percent. You know, there are so many things to consider when you're signing a deal. And, you know, one thing that I was always big on for my career was I wanted to sign in first divisions, you know, because mm -hmm. first divisions, you know, even if I took a, a lower salary, I knew I would put up the stats and I could make it up. And obviously, like I said before, I had the luxury to do that and build out my career that way. Mm -hmm. But a lot of players, they 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 don't have that luxury. They need to get to it right now. Sure. And so because they have immediate concerns, family, things like that. So they they'll they'll tell you this is my minimum salary. This is the 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 least amount I'll take. I want to play Euro Cup because this is what Euro Cup is going to do for me. I want to play Euro League. So but with that being said, that's why it's really important to have a really good agent. One of the so during the quarantine, I went live with a lot of players, a lot of agents, and a lot of coaches just to just to show my public and my my following that I had access to these people, and more so to give them to let them hear firsthand experiences and firsthand advice from people that have done it and are doing it in different avenues within professional basketball overseas. And one of the guys that we interviewed was Will Thomas. Um, Will Thomas was the starting power forward on the George Mason Final Four team. And Will Will made a a point that I never considered as a player. He said he started off his career in Republic of Georgia. Okay. Mid-level league, but his agent gave him some of the best advice. His agent told him, like I was doing when I finished my first year, he's obviously looking to go somewhere else. His agent said, go back there. You know the country, you know the system of the team, you're going to be comfortable there. So he went back there, became MVP of the league. Will's been playing EuroLeague for the last six years. But his agent had a plan for him. So the reason I brought up is you have to have a plan. So if you tell, and one thing I tell my clients, I ask them, what are you in this for? Are you trying to get to the highest level or are you trying to make the most money? Because not those two things don't always line up together. Because there are markets that you can go to that aren't respected that you can make a ton of money. Mm -hmm. South South America, um, some African Middle East countries, Asia. But you know, if you're trying to get to the highest level, you know, then there's a there's a course you have to take to get there. 
And so to Will's point, you know, he he had a plan mapped out and he, he's playing early, you know. And so so there, there are a lot of things to consider when you're signing a deal. It's not just about, oh, I got a deal. A lot of players sometimes do that and they don't understand. It's like being an actor or an actress. You can typecast yourself. Yeah. If you play in a country, you can get locked into that market and you better hope that they're paying you an adequate salary to be there because nobody else is going to respect it. You're basically going to be starting from ground zero. It's tough. You have to be so strategic and and this is the long game, right? Like you have to yeah. know that, all right, I'm, I'm taking a hit financially this year, but it's for a sort of longer plan that I'm, that I'm working my way into. And then there may be certain leagues that are more appropriate based on where you are in terms of like point in your career. Some of those leagues that, you know, might be, might not be as reputable in terms of getting future jobs, but they throw a lot of money at you. Maybe that's better suited for somebody at the end of their career that doesn't want to worry as much about, you know, the yeah. next job and things like that. And and I want to go back to a point um, before, before we talk about this, like China, right? China's a prime example. A lot of players, once they hit 30, they go out to Asia because that's where the money is. Mm-hmm. It's, they, they don't really, it's not as high quality of basketball as Europe, you know, Europe, if you average 40, look at, look at Luca. He was the EuroLeague MVP, averaged 14 points a game. That's, that's not abnormal for, for the EuroLeague MVP to average under 20 points a game. But in China, they want you to shoot the ball 20, 30, 40 times. And if you're not averaging 30, then they see it as you're having a bad season. Mm-hmm. Like they've guys who have gotten sent home averaging 20 points a game in China. And they, they want to be entertained. Too. Yeah. yeah, they could be winning, but they want to be entertained. So you'll see, like during the lockout, J.R. Smith went out to China. He has 60 points off the bench. Right. You know, and you know, you, you start to think, like, all right, is it really that sweet out there? But you know, when I played out there, if you can't score 20 in China, then there's something really wrong with your game. <laughs> just just being honest. Um, and it has nothing to do with their lack of ability. It's just that the way they revere Americans is almost a like it's a reverence while you're playing and it's not really i don't this is going to sound bad but it's not a they compete when they think they're in the game Mm -hmm. but once the game is no longer in doubt that's when you just run up run up your stats but they have a lot of talent in china um you know as a sidebar they have a lot of talent out there the leagues out there the way they've structured basketball in china is second only to the nba in terms of grassroots up to the pros they have the best system for basketball um, not in terms of development, just in terms of the business of basketball, how they monetize it. Um, obviously, Europe, to me, is, is far ahead of everybody else, even America, in terms of development of players. They do the best job of developing players in terms of fundamentals, like knowing how to play basketball. And you see it when you play in these countries, the way they teach the six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds to play, spacing, passing, and things like that. You don't see that in the States. You go to a six, seven-year-old game, everybody's running to the ball. All the kids are fighting for one ball. There's no concept of spacing or anything. So, but but going back to the point I was trying to make before, when you talk about being strategic about your career, they, they've literally, there have literally been times where I'm in the middle of a game and I'm thinking to myself, I'm three for five from three. Do I want to shoot another three? Because if I shoot over 50% this season, I'll make more money next season than if I shoot below 50%. And you're thinking about that in the middle of a game. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy. It's Every time I say this, it sounds crazy to me, but it was my reality for a sure. while because my money was contingent upon basketball at the time. And so I had to think like that. These were business decisions. And so a lot of times, a lot of, a lot of hoopers, quote unquote hoopers, they get caught up 
in the basketball aspect and they forget they're in the business of basketball when you're playing overseas or in the NBA. And, you know, there, there was an example in the NBA of that not too long ago with Mo Harkless when he was playing for Portland. He had a clause in his contract that if he shot 45% from three, that he would get a bonus, a multi-million dollar bonus. For the last five games of that year, he was at 45%. He didn't take one three. You know, and, and people were probably wondering why isn't he shooting? He's open. He's playing with name and CJ. So he's definitely getting open looks. He had to make a business decision. You know, he's not he's not a max player. So so he had to do what was best for him. Does it make it harder to play when you have to think about all those things or or take the fun out of it when, you know, you can't kind of maybe play as organically as, as you would like? A hundred percent. I honestly, I hate the business of basketball because I'm a I'm a true fan i'm a true like i love basketball i love it i love it i love it with everything that's in me you know i live it breathe it i can talk about it all day i can watch it all day i can teach it all day but you know when the business comes in you know you have to you have to make a decision you can stand on your principles and and on your 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 ivory tower saying i did it my way and then end up with nothing or you can you know kind of take a step back you know humble yourself a little bit do what you have to do and then create avenues outside of basketball that generate money that that now like for me now I'm back to playing how I want to play because my money's not contingent upon basketball anymore and so that was one thing vindicated sports really did for me was it gave me it took me back to the essence of why I started playing where I can just play to play whether I had two points or 20 points whether you know I get just as much excitement of making a good pass as as I do of dunking or making a three and so, you know, that's that's one thing I always implore for guys, young and old, because a lot of my friends, you know, that are my age, like they got hit with reality during COVID because a lot of them are used to making a certain amount of money. Mm. And when COVID hit, not only did the basketball market stop, but the money, you know, offers that they were getting after it reopened were starkly different than what they were used to getting. And they still had the same lifestyle that they had before. Same bills, same family responsibilities. and now they're being asked to take a quarter of what they're usually usually making. So, you know, one thing that, you know, that I tell guys, try to find what it is that you love to do and then find out what that industry needs and then provide a service for that. You know, it's, it's simple, but it's not. Uh, sound, sounds, it's easier said than done. But, um, but yeah, let's it's, it's, it's continue, Matt. No, that's so great. And it's, it's really interesting for, for me to hear too, because I think as we go into the show, like you're priming me for all the stuff I, I, I want to like help get out of other guys too, because it's, it's interesting to hear how much of those experiences are the same from, from person to person. I mean, I think individual experience would be the same, but just general focusing on the business, things like that. And I guess that kind of makes me wonder, like you talk about like your stats or, or like your next job is largely contingent on your stats. Has has that changed a little bit with more access to film and things like that? Like if like a team can see that you make winning plays that maybe don't mm -hmm. show up on a box score, are they more likely to take a chance on you now than they would have been when all they saw was your, was your stat sheet? Well, like any other industry, politics always involved in sports, right? So let's, let's be clear about that. Who, you know, who your agent is, sure. you know, you know, your relationship with that team, that GM, like my, my the year I signed in Greece, my agent at the time, um, Vasilis Koros, the godfather to his son was an assistant coach with the team. Mm. It's all relationships, mm -hmm. you know, like it's all relationships. And, you know, and I had to be able to play, don't get me wrong, but what I've gotten to the table to even be considered, if he didn't have the relationships, who knows? 
you know? And so like, this politics play a huge part in this. But then like, once you get to the table and now you have their attention, now it's about, so the process is like this. They always ask for a highlight film, right? Just like a movie, you're not going to go see a movie that you don't see the preview for. And, and then once they're interested, then they always ask for either one or two full game films. They want to see a game because they, they want to see you playing an unedited film. Mm-hmm. They want to see the good, the bad, your body language, you know, how you respond to adversity, things like that. Because anybody can make a highlight look good. Let's be clear. Right. Now it's with, with, with media and videographers at every yeah. workout, every game, everybody looks like a star. Um, but then once you really get to see them uncensored, unadulterated, you know, you kind of get a feel for who they are. So that's how the process normally works. With that being said, once you get signed, there's not a lot of job security overseas. And something I was always, that was one thing I did pick up from the older guys I was around. I would listen just to, just to how, how capricious and fickle these teams were. A guy that we're going to interview that I'm actually going to recommend at the end of this um, podcast, at the end of this interview, um, to come on as our next guest. But he made a good point to me. He told me that you have to win over your teammates, win over the community when you play overseas. The reason being, you might have a guaranteed contract, and FIBA is the governing body, but it's to say it's unregulated is an understatement in terms of the protection for the, the American players and maybe European players and international players as well, but I can only speak for American players. So in your contracts, you always have like a clause for BAT, B-A-T, right? It's the, it's the basketball tribunal. It's in Switzerland. It's, you know, Switzerland is always, you know, is used as, it's neutral, right? So, you know, when you ever, you have a disagreement, you go to Switzerland. Like that's where you, you, you adjudicate everything. And so, but a lot of times teams will owe you money for even the most novice international basketball fan has heard the stories of players not getting paid and that being rampant throughout professional basketball overseas. So your contract can get, can be guaranteed. You can have clauses in your contract that state um, for indemnification. If you're, if the team doesn't pay you, these are the penalties and all of this stuff. And they'll still find a way that Greece is notorious for it. Greece is the only place. They still owe me money from 2013. I'm never going to see that money. Yeah, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. But I knew that going in. So my agent, he got me as much money up front as he possibly could. And then, you know, as we were winning, everything was good. Once we started losing, they started to piece our money to us. Mm-hmm. And it, it actually got to a point uh, at its worst where my Greek teammates, who hadn't gotten paid since August, they went on strike. Oh, jeez. Okay. And that's something that, honestly, I haven't heard too many. You know, I talk to a lot of my friends in the industry. I haven't heard that happen too often. Right. It's pretty bad. All of the Greek, all of the Greek players on my team, and the name of my team is Alisiakos, they've been relegated to the second division at this point, mm-hmm. obviously, if, if you got players going on strike. but It's not a good business model to, for no, success. Got, no, for, seriously. It got to a point where all of us, the four imports, were on the practice court, and the rest of the guys, the Greek, our, our Greek teammates, stayed in the locker room. Before before we played Panathinaikos, which is one of the greatest teams in European basketball history, and pound for pound the best team in Greek basketball history, so as this was the week leading up to that game, and so our teammates went on strike, so we're out on the court, and obviously something happened throughout the week, and they came and played the game, but the game was in jeopardy. But you know, to to the point, it's not a lot of job security, so you have to do everything in your power on and off the court to make you a commodity to this team. 
like like my friend was telling me, if your teammates like you, they'll fight for you. They'll tell the staff, hey, we like Mike, you know, keep him around. Yeah, he might be struggling right now with his games, but he's a good teammate and we want to give him, you know, some more time to see if he can adjust. But let's say you, you start off the season averaging 20 points first five games, but you've been a jerk. You're arrogant. You show up late. You know, you know, show up late to the bus. You think the world revolves around you, which is not uncommon. Mm-hmm. You know, you get overseas, you, you start to get a big head because some guys try to reinvent themselves or they actually think they're in the NBA. Right. And and they see what the NBA guys are, are what's being tolerated in the NBA. And they think it's going to be tolerated like that overseas. The NBA is a players league. Mm-hmm. Overseas is a team coaches league. They'll send you home before the coach. And, and the next guy will be there before you even packed up your stuff. There are thousands of players. Like I'm seeing it now with my vindicated company and my page, but there are literally hundreds and thousands of players that will kill for mm-hmm. your position. Literally, like they will, they will, they will do anything to be where you are. So they're just waiting. The agents are waiting for you to do something. They're watching the stats. They're watching who's playing bad. They're talking to the teams. Hey, I see this guy's only averaging seven. I have a guy here that'll give you 15 to 16. And this is all happening throughout the season. So if the team already doesn't like you and you're starting to fall off in terms of statistics in your production, oh, they can't wait to get you out of there and get somebody else in there. Especially if they don't have playoff aspiration. You know, it's almost like a team um, that's tanking. You know, why why would we spend the money? Why would we spend the money on this guy when we're not going to make the playoffs? We can get a younger guy in here who will take less. Mm-hmm. You know, who would just be ha- basically happy to be here. Might be hungrier. You know, so, might be hungrier, you know, might be more coachable and things like that. Like, why put up with this headache? So, you know, it's it's really important that guys and girls keep that in mind when they're over there. And and then there's certain ways to handle not getting paid. You know, like, you know, you let your agent do his job. You know, you show up to practice until it gets to a point where, all right, the team is not showing any type of, good faith, then you might have to sit out of practice, sit out of games. And you, and then by that point, your, your agent is going to enforce the clause that says after a certain time period, you're free to leave and things mm-hmm. like that. So, yeah, no, that, that that is not abnormal. Everybody has different circumstances and stories as to those type of stories. My biggest one is always the Greek one where my teammates went on strike. I've heard stories where like uh, a guy played a, you know, put up a certain amount of stats and was due like, let's say a $5,000 bonus. Mm-hmm. And then the team penalized him or, or, you know, like said, you owe us $5,000 worth of fines because of something you did that they could never really, you know, yeah. explain. So like they build uh-huh. in these clauses with no intention of ever actually paying them out. And I think the interesting thing on, on what you just hit on there is the importance of an agent, but also who pays the agent. If, if you could get into that for a second, yeah. I, I think that would be really interesting for people. That's, that's a great question, Matt. 100%. The agent fee is always paid by the team, 100%. In the NBA, you pay your agent fee out of pocket. You handle your 10%. Overseas, 100%, the team pays your agent fee. And so with that being said, you have to kind of do your research. And just like you said, it's good to have a a notable agent, agent that's that's down for you, that's going to fight for you. But at the same time, nobody's going to care about your career as much as you. Mm -hmm. So you have to do your own research. Because they might have a relationship with the team. They know they're going to get paid. It might not be necessarily the best spot for you, but they know that they won't have to worry about the team paying the agent fee because of their prior history. So they're trying to send as many players as they can to that team, whether it's good or bad for your career. And so you have to do your research to see, all right, is this market going to help me get to where I'm trying to go? And that's a question that a player has to answer for 
him or herself. But yeah, 100%, the agent fee is paid by the team. And then a lot of times too, the agent, you might be getting paid, but then your agent might not have gotten paid. Mm -hmm. So now the agent will try to tell you, don't go to practice, don't go to games. So you have a decision to make now because on one hand, you're being taken care of. Sure. And if you don't play in games and, you know, so there, there's a dilemma there. Yeah. And you can end up sanctioned by these governing bodies too, or, or banned from a league and limit yourself for, for future opportunities. If you, if you kind of go on strike. So like there's, there's consequences for you. Uh, but do you want to burn the bridge with the agent? Like, I think all those things are, are so fascinating. And they're things that I don't think people realize that you have to have in the back of your mind the entire time that you're doing this. Yeah, no, this is the, the ability to compartmentalize and to be able to multitask as an international basketball player is severely underrated and underreported, to be honest. And one thing that, you know, it's going to come across in this podcast is that just to see like how much guys and girls are juggling while being over there. Because for me, the basketball part is always the easiest part. Once I'm on the court, it's nothing that they, they can teach me or throw at me that I haven't seen before. I've been playing basketball since I was seven years old, competitively organized. So there's no concepts that I can't comprehend. There's nothing that I'm going to be stuck on. There's, there's nothing. They might have different terminology, but basketball is basketball. Off the court, that's a, that's a different story. You know, that's where, you know, because basically you have 20 hours of free time. You might have two-day practices in, in some of the best leagues in Europe. You practice twice a day. Um, you might put in some extra work, so it's five or six more hours. You have the rest of the day, 18 hours, to, to, to be by yourself in isolation. You know, if your family is there, that's a blessing. If not, you're there by yourself. You know, you have to, you know, one guy, when I was playing in Greece, he has a, he had a term. He had a term for it to help cope with that transition period. He called it going all the way Euro. And okay. it wasn't just, it was, it, it was a mindset that you have to be in. So for me, my first two years, like I said before, I didn't even go to London when I was in England, Denmark, my second year. I went to Copenhagen at the end of the year, right before I left to go back to America. So I, I was telling him this because he played in Greece when I was there. He actually played for Panathinaikos. And so we were, there were six teams in Athens in the Greek top league. So even though we're all on different teams, we were 15 minutes from each other. So we all ate, we hung out and things like that. And he's playing EuroLeague. So he's always had a vast you know, knowledge of this industry. And he was telling me, being in my third year, he told me, you got to go all the way Euro. And what that meant was, Stop watching American TV. Stop doing everything that was like that kept you close to home because you're not home. Right. If you keep thinking that you you have to embrace where you are, go out to the town, sit in coffee shops, talk to the locals. You know that's going to help your transition and help you make it through this time period. Because after a month, if, for me, it started feeling like work. You know, like I love going to the gym. I love practicing. I love that stuff. But after that, it was like you got all that time. You know, and for, and for me, I wasn't productive, being honest. I was watching every TV show known to man. You know, I just, I wasn't productive. I had, I had my video games. I had video games. I'm playing online. It wasn't until year six that it really clicked with me. Like, okay, let's be more productive. Let's see how we can utilize this, this free time that we do have and this network that we now have to, to do something constructive. But that's a big part right there. Go all the way Euro. You have to go all the way Euro. Let's pause for a quick break from two of our sponsors. First, Masterworks. What I'm about to say might shock you, but the greatest quarterback of all time is not just a goat on the field. He's a goat when it comes to investing too. He invests in stocks, crypto, and even art. Now you can invest like the goat with Masterworks. 
Masterworks is the investing platform that lets you buy shares representing an investment in art from icons like Picasso, Monet, and Warhol. Art prices actually outpaced the S&P 500 by 164% from 1992 to 2021. In fact, early investors already received over 30% IRR in 2020 and 2021 from the sale of just two paintings. This is your opportunity to join 300,000 other members and invest like the GOAT. Plus, you can get priority access with our game day promo. Go to masterworks.art slash believe. That's masterworks.art slash believe, B-L-E-A-V. See important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. And now, NordVPN. What's more important than peace of mind? Nothing. And that's what NordVPN is here for, to give you peace of mind while you're online. And with all the threats you face today on the internet, it's more important than ever to be sure that you have the best VPN you can get. NordVPN is the world's best VPN service, offering the fastest connectivity, most servers, and next-gen encryption to make sure that everything you do online stays secure. Plus, you can use NordVPN on all of your computers and devices, no matter the operating system. With NordVPN's unlimited bandwidth, you never have to worry about a slow connection either. And plans start at just under $4. So grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com believe, or use the code believe, that's B-L-E-A-V, to get up to 70% off your NordVPN plan, plus one additional month for free. It's also risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. And now, let's get back to the show. I heard Mike James, who anybody that follows international basketball knows, is is one of the bigger names right mm-hmm. now. And he said, honestly, the scary thing about playing in Europe is that you get so comfortable by yourself that when you get around people, it's actually annoying. I no, mean, seriously. Can you talk a little bit about, about that for, for you? Well, for me, I was always a person that looked intrinsically, always, I always looked at myself first. I wanted to know how I could improve myself. I was always doing work on myself. Even as, as a young person, I was very self-aware. You know, I knew, like, I went to Blake High School first, and I was playing power forward at 5'10". I was like, well, I'm not going to play power forward in college. You know, you know. so I'm like, I told my parents, I need to transfer. I need to go to a school that had 7 footers, 6'10s, so I can play my natural position and show these colleges you know exactly what I can do. Mm-hmm. So I, was, I always had that self-awareness about myself. I was always looking to improve. And so when you're overseas, you have a lot of time to be by yourself. And a lot of times you get to know yourself, you know what you like, you know what you don't like, you know what you can tolerate. So when you're around different groups of people, it's very easy to identify if it's your group or not. And if it's not your group, you can come off as antisocial because you're okay being by yourself, Mm -hmm. like going out, having dinner by yourself, going to a movie by yourself, you know, and then, you know, and and actually it's a good and bad thing because it can make you feel antisocial on the bad end, but on the good end, you can easily identify your 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 village, you know, your group of people, your crowd. So um, it's, it's actually an interesting point that he made when he said that. And I did see that as well when he tweeted that. But um, but yeah, the isolation, people don't think about that. You know, you're in a country that, and if you're not in a major city, my first two years, I wasn't in a major city. It wasn't until my third year that I lived in Athens where you see a lot of international people traveling there and things like that. I lived in towns. I lived in Worcester, Worcestershire, England which is a suburb. And then I lived in Nesville, Denmark, which is about an hour and a half, two hours from, from Copenhagen, which is the major city. And so both great cities, I mean, great towns, great cities, great people, especially Nesville. Like I love the people there. I still talk to people there to this day. Um, they really took care of me, but at the same time, 
it wasn't a lot of Americans. It wasn't a lot of Black Americans mm-hmm. out there. So you, you obviously stood out. So there's, there's just a lot of things to consider when you're over there. But for me, I always embraced culture. You know, I always was curious about different cultures and kept an open mind. Um, and that prepared me for when I went to China, which was a whole different world. And I'm sure we'll get into that later on. What do you do to protect your mental health in a situation like that? Like, I mean, you talked about watching a lot of TV shows, not being super yeah. productive, but it's not like you can jump in your car and go drive and visit some buddies an hour or two away. Like it, it's just, you're limited by transportation, by sometimes mm-hmm. the language, not having a, a good idea of what are the things to do around you. Like if you don't have somebody to show you around, like how do you yeah. kind of make sure that you, you don't go crazy? I mean, for me, I'm a man of faith. So, you know, I always kept myself grounded. I, and I, and I had perspective too. going back to how I started my career. I knew I was fortunate and blessed to be there, you know, especially going back to the car accident. Like for me to complain about somebody not speaking my language would be super selfish, super like just arrogant, like to the point it's like, you're lucky to be alive to to feel this discomfort. Like I got to that point, Mm -hmm. like embracing pain, like enjoying pain, not to the point where I was seeking it like a masochist or anything, but, but, but to the point where it's like, keeping things in perspective. And I think that's the biggest thing that players need to do when they play overseas is to keep things in perspective. So one thing that I did outside of, you know, you know, reading my Bible, staying grounded in God's word was I would be outside and I would just take in the fact like, man, I'm in Denmark right now. Or when I was in China, I lived in Shanghai my first year and a half. And like literally, because it can be so much, I would just like every day, I would just take in like, man, I'm in, I'm in Shanghai right now. Who would have thought, you know, like, basketball would have taken me here that I would have been here and when you have that perspective it changes everything it's all about perspective if you think about oh I'm missing my family or or I'm missing out you know FOMO and things like that back home then of course you can you can have a potential to go crazy you know or you know you can be mentally unstable and that can reflect in your performance on the court your interaction with your teammates and they they might just be the the victim of it but they're not the, the source of it you know so for me, it was all about perspective, like just making sure I took time each day to just understand like what I went through to get to get here and actually where I am right now. Not not everybody's able to do that. I mean, that's that's kudos to you for, for being able to, you know, to to have that perspective, because you hear stories about guys like, hey, I, I couldn't do it. Like, I, yeah. I, mean, I think it I think it does seem like it's getting easier for people and you know, FaceTime and Zoom and things like that. You're a little yeah, I, I was on favorite. Skype. I had yeah. Skype yeah, back you then, <laughs> you know? So we didn't even have, like, you know, all of these things, you know? And then I didn't even have an iPhone until my third year. Mm-hmm. So if you didn't hit me on Skype, you couldn't talk to me. Sure. Or I didn't have iMessage or, or FaceTime. I had just got an iPad my second year. So I didn't even know how to use it. I never had Apple before. I never had iPhone. So... You hear about some of these like older, you know, the the generation previous, like spending time in like uh-huh. internet cafes in whatever yeah. city they were in, uh-huh. S- satellite phones, yep. and using what what was it called, Boxster or something like that, like to call back home. Mm-hmm. And you know, they have, and I'm I'm actually very interested to get a few of the older guys on to talk about their experiences because it's night and day, like their mindset, what they what they went through, how they cope with it. Because I couldn't imagine, you know, knowing even we had technology, the limited technology we had still made it tough. Like they had nothing that connected them to to back home outside of collect calls and things like that. So 
I'm actually, I'm really curious to get them on to talk about their experiences. We talked a lot about like contracts and things like that and, and salary, but also opportunity. But mm-hmm. NBA players, when they come up with contracts, it, it is sort of dollars and cents. For mm-hmm. international players, there's all kinds of other things that get baked in to that contract. You hear about guys kind of building in a certain amount of flights for family to come out and oh, visit yeah. and things like yeah. that. Can, can you get into what are the extras that go into contracts um, and, and well, well, lifestyle? No, 100%. So let's be clear. A contract is literally just a negotiation between two parties. Mm-hmm. So you literally, if the other party wants to agree on taking you to practice on a camel every week <laughs> and you put that in your contract, if that's what you fancy, if that's what you want, that's what that's what they'll give you. So, mm-hmm. you know, obviously that's a, you know, that's a, uh, it's an exaggerated point, but to that point, you can literally ask for anything in your contract. It's all about if the team and organization are going to agree to it. Mm-hmm. So, I'll, I'll never forget, as you said, I played in the Czech Republic. That year, my agent gave me a contract for the second division, right? And I'm thinking, why is he sending me a second division contract? You know, so I asked him, I said, like, what's up with this? And he said, look at the numbers, Mike. Look at the incentives. So I had a salary. So so there was a guy in that city. It was in Valesky, Mezzerici, three hours away from Prague. And he loved basketball, right? Business guy. Uh, Jan, I still talk to him to this day on Facebook. Great guy. He wanted to bring a team to his city, to his town. He wanted to import, you know, an American player to play with him. And at the time, I had dual citizenship, so it made it easy for me to play there. And so they paid me a salary, for fully furnished apartment, great apartment. But the kicker was this. My agent had negotiated a bonus for me for every basket that I scored. Wow, okay. Layups, free throws. Threes, I got a bonus for all of them. And obviously, I'm playing against inferior competition. So my stats were through the roof. I made more money that year than I've ever made in Europe. That's awesome. And in a team that was in the second division, you know, I was making more money than guys in the first division. And so that really showed me there was nothing that you can't ask for. Now, of course, you hear about guys getting incentive laden contracts. You get a double double bonus if you're a big man, a rebound bonus, block shot bonus. You can get anything in your contract. And but to your point, a lot of things that are built in that are standard are your housing is covered 100 percent. Taxes are covered 100 percent. Assurance is covered 100 percent. Now, once you get to car, most top division leagues will give you a car. As you start going down, it starts getting um, less and less about, you know, the chance of you getting a car or you might have a shared car with the other Americans and things like that. And then a lot of things, a lot of times now agents are, are billing in food like restaurants so the players don't have to worry about cooking you know even if they have a girlfriend or wife with them you know somebody that's that's assisting them they don't have to worry about where they're going to eat every day they can you your job as an agent is supposed to make it as easy as your player as easy as possible for your player to focus on just playing because if the player doesn't play you're you're relatively ineffective as an agent you can't sell what's not there you can't shop what's not there so in order for you to put up the stats to, to play the way you need to play, you need to be comfortable. You need to be focused. And that, so a lot of times in your contract, an agent will do it, it, anything it takes or try to negotiate that, whether, whether it's billing in flights for your family, you know, um, getting bonuses. So, you know, you, you're getting these type of money to incentivize you to do certain things to help you as an agent do your job. You know, so if you need your play, like if you know, all right, I'm trying to get him the first division turkey in the BSL. He needs to get 10 rebounds a game. 
all right, let me see if the team will allow him to get a double-double bonus so that he's incentivized to get 10 rebounds every game, even if the game is in doubt. Mm-hmm. You know if you get those three extra rebounds that you're going to get a bonus. So you're indirectly helping yourself for next year and the year after because of what that incentive is giving you. That food one's interesting, too, because it's not like, you know, you're an athlete. You want to watch what you put into your body, at least, you know, some of the time, yeah. right? So. I had a friend that was doing like a couple month long clinic in China. He said he ate Mm -hmm. McDonald's like literally every day because he just, he didn't know what to eat. He didn't know where to go. Like he didn't like the couple of things he tried. Like, how do you navigate that going? Like if you're in the country for multiple years, you have more opportunity to get Mm -hmm. comfortable and adjusted. But how do you do that when you're kind of thrown in a new place? Well, I mean, to, to, to your friend's point, when I first week I went out to China, I was living in a hotel before they got my apartment ready, mm-hmm. I was at McDonald's. I never, I never eat McDonald's in the yeah. States. And I went there for breakfast, like, because it's just what I knew, sure. you know, then obviously, you know, once I got to my apartment, I started cooking mm-hmm. and things like that, you know, you can, and one, there's another misconception that people think when you go play basketball overseas or when you're living outside of America, that you're in some foreign planet that doesn't have amenities and things like that. And that's what I thought too. That's why I took so much stuff with me. You can buy everything over there. There's, they have international sections in the store that literally have everything that we have here in the States, in, in most places. Mm-hmm. And even in China, like I found everything I needed there. And a lot of times the food is actually processed differently. So you're actually healthier. So like I got in such great shape playing overseas just because of the way that even the fast food you take, you take like McDonald's or KFC, which are two big companies that are overseas. The food tastes different. The soda tastes different. The portions are smaller. Like they don't have supersize. Like that concept is so American. Like you will never see a supersize fry or like one of those big gold 7-Eleven cups. And they have 40 ounce soda. Yeah. Yeah. You'll you'll never see that. And you know, that's kind of that's a whole different topic about obesity in the States and things like that. But to your point, you actually get in shape better overseas just, be, just because the food is cleaner. And, and and then like, you know, they don't tax like things that we tax here in the States. So you go to the grocery store and to buy f- fruit that's already cut, pre-cut, it costs more than the uncut fruit. But in like in China, for example, you can go to the grocery store, give them the pineapple. They'll cut it for you right in front of you and charge you the same price for the uncut fruit. Yeah, so like there, there, there are a lot of things that are beneficial for playing overseas that a lot of people don't understand that, you know, they're going to understand through this podcast and it's going to be a fun journey. Uh, all right, let's talk on the court here for a minute. So so obviously you played in the, in the Big West in college. That is a good level of college basketball. How does that compare with some of these leagues that you went in? And you don't have to go league by league, but just in, in general, like kind of help frame for people what playing overseas is like, because, because you hear a lot of like, I had the argument pre-draft with, with some folks this year when the wizards were looking internationally, like people were like, Oh, I'd rather have somebody from the ACC than I would mm-hmm. that played, uh, you know, in the BBL or something like, mm-hmm. h- how do you kind of make that connection for people about what the competition level is like? Well, the competition has obviously dramatically grown even prior to me playing overseas and then definitely from when I started to now Hmm. before you kind of knew when you went overseas that you were going to be the man, you're going to be the focal point of the offense. You were going to be 
relied upon to basically make plays for not only yourself, but for your other teammate. That is, that's not the case anymore. You have to come and be ready because they have some local guys that can flat out go. They can flat out get buckets. They're athletic now. Before, like, as an American, the rules were different, too, when I started playing, prior to when I started playing. So I don't like to act as if I was the first, like, when I first started playing, that's when overseas basketball started. This has been going on for decades, obviously. But you couldn't rip through. Like, you know, you catch the ball, sweep through, and go to the basket. That was considered a travel overseas. We have to catch the ball, put it down, then go. Because, and I don't know this to be true, but this is what I've been told. You know, the American guards were so athletic and so quick that the it Europeans, blew by, or the, yeah. they blew by. So they're trying to make it fair to, to for the competition. But once the athleticism of the Europeans increased and, and the international player increased, that rule has been negated, which is why rules are arbitrary. But, you know, and they all have agendas. But but now you can rip through now with no problem and it's not a travel anymore. The rules have changed. But to your point, the, comp- the, the competition level when I first started was you're an American, you're coming in to be the man, basically, similar to China. Now is... You, you need to be the man, but also you need to be able to fit into the system. But they give you a lot more leeway than college. If we're comparing college to overseas. One of the biggest differences that I saw was that they brought me in there to do a job and they were going to let me do my job with the least amount of micromanaging, which was perfect for me. They didn't waste time with running sprints. You did all that in preseason. You're not in practice running sprints. You're not wasting time. But that's also in college basketball. When you play for, you know, good college basketball programs, you do your preseason work in preseason. And in practice, if you don't perform, if you're not doing right, you're off. Somebody else is in and they over recruit you for the next year because your scholarship is only from year to year. But being overseas is a lot more freedom. You know, even though it's still a coaches league um, similar to college, they let you play your game because they're signing you for a reason. They look at you as a pro. They treat you as a pro. And that was the biggest difference that I saw was that they they allowed me to play my game. You know, like I told you in college, I had coaches telling me, don't shoot the ball. And like, they will never say that to you overseas. They'll, they'll just send you home, you know, and they get somebody in there that can do the job. But, you know, they're going to let you play good or bad for better or worse. And, and that's what it is. And so that was the biggest difference. But now the competition is really good overseas. Like you can't just go over there. You have to be prepared. And not to say you didn't have to be prepared before, but now it's like, you know, these dudes can play. Like, and one thing, they could always shoot. So, like, when I first started in the decades before, they would bring Americans in to kind of set the table for, for the players that couldn't do for themselves. So you look at a player like somebody comparable, and this is no indictment on them as a player because most of the guys in the NBA that are quote-unquote shooters, at one point in their career, they could put the ball on the floor and create for themselves. But like even JJ Redick, you know, you know, he's a great creator of the basketball. He just recently retired, but like a guy that's known for his shot making ability, right? He's not known for creating off the dribble and things like that. If you really watch basketball, you know that he can do that. He has the ability to do that. But that's most times when he yeah. when he signs to a team like Davis Bertans, if we're talking about the the Wizards, right? Mm-hmm. Great catch and shoot player. So they'll bring guys in, myself, guards like that, that can break down the defense attract Bertans man. So now when I kick it to him, he has a naked three point, you know, that's, that's valuable to teams. So before, but now they have their own guards that can do that, you know? So it's like, all right, what else are you bringing to the table? So now, you know, these guys coming up, you can't just come in thinking, Oh, I'm an American. I'm going to dominate. No, you really have to earn your spot and perform, especially if they're paying you top dollar. 
I think it's become a requirement for every basketball podcast to ask this question in some way, but you always hear who's the guy, uh, you know, that, that kind of lit you up the most, but who's the coldest guy internationally that maybe casual fans haven't heard of. And that can be like someone overseas or an American playing mm-hmm. overseas, but, but give us a name of somebody might not know that, that just gave you like a world of trouble. Mm. Let me think. It would have to be that year in Greece. Okay. That year in Greece was, there was a lot of good players that year. Um, you had, you know, my best friend, James Giss, who we're going to talk about later on, who I want to invite on the show. He played out there, former University of Maryland star, San Antonio Spurs draft pick. Um, but his team, man, they, that year they were stacked. They had Jason Capono. Oh, okay. Yeah, Shooter. you start from there. Rocco Ukic, who played with the Raptors. Mm-hmm. They had um, Dimitris Diamatidis, who's who's one of the greatest players in European basketball history. Mm-hmm. That guy's a magician with the passing. They had... Was the, oh, they had Sophocles. He, they, that was the guy that played for the Greek national team. They called him Baby Shaq. Got it. Yep. Okay. He was, he was on the team. Was he a Justin Kings Turner, draft pick? I, he, I think he played for the Kings or... or Somebody picked you know, him Rock, up. Yeah. No, he was drafted for sure in the second round. But that guy, man, they would put him in just to put teams in a bonus. They would go to him three straight, four straight possessions because, you know, overseas it's 5,000 and you're in the bonus. So like that team right there, man, they were they were so stacked. But in terms of like just an international player that that I've seen that has really like made me really admire them is Mike James. Just because people look at him now and he's a yearly played with the Brooklyn Nets and all that, but he didn't start there. He started on one of the local local league teams and worked his way up. You know, like his story is incredible. And, you know, he he's the quintessential overseas basketball player. Like, if they were ever to have, like, a, a picture of what an overseas journey is like, it's his journey. You know, relatively unknown, got into a league, made his bones in those leagues, worked his way up, got summer league, summer league, summer league training camp, went back overseas, Phoenix Suns, you know, went back overseas, Brooklyn, you know, now he's, now he's a staple. Now, because of social media, people are really – started to see like man this guy he's your favorite player's favorite player and he, so he's he the these, answer you hear to that question him and shane uh shane larkin are shane the larkin, two that, yeah. yeah but even shane larkin you know he had he had a more conventional route because sure. he was you know university of miami all acc um draft pick played in the nba right out of college so but 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 mike james though his story is, is incredible you know his story is incredible um but but the one player though the one player, and I have to give him his respect, right? Because I used to watch him from afar. And it wasn't until he played on my team that I really had a re- – not, not that I didn't respect his game before, but I really had an appreciation for his game was Terrell Stoglin. There you go. Another turn. So, ter- I love yeah, it. Ter- Terrell Stoglin, obviously, he left Maryland early. His first year overseas was on my team in Greece. Okay. So on my team in Greece, we had Travis Garrison, nice. former Turk. Yeah. We had Terrell Stoglin. Um, we had Dominic Morrison who played at Oral Roberts and then myself. You know, looking from afar, you watching this kid at all ACC, lead scoring the ACC. And you're thinking, man, like, how is this guy, like, scoring like this? He's not tall. He's not crazy fast. But he's putting up 20 in his sleep. Man, there were games where we would be playing in Greece. And I'm just, I'm, it's like I'm watching a show. <laughs> like, like, seriously. And, 
you know, all the guys that played in Greece that year, they can attest to this. And even my teammates, like, it was his first year, but he was, he was, he was amazing. Like, he's still amazing, to be honest. But, you know, as, as we were talking, like, he was the, he's the one that, you know, obviously his career isn't as, you know, as, as great as Mike James's. You know, he doesn't have all the accolades Mike James has and things like that. But just in terms of somebody that I was like, I had an appreciation for the game was him. If anyone's wondering why I get so visibly excited anytime we mention a turf, I am a University of Maryland grad. Uh, Mike and I are both from the state of Maryland, so there might be yeah. sort of a, a, a common theme there throughout. So sure. uh, if you don't fear the turtle, uh, bear, bear with <laughs> us here a little bit. So my couple couple more questions here for you. What's the craziest thing either a coach, a teammate, or an opponent said to you? Like, and and it can be, it can be trash talk. It can be mm. something they said that wasn't it, just like bad sort of bad basketball suggestion. Like any anything like that, where you just like shook your head, like why was why would someone say that? Huh? <laughs> is this a is this a PG thirteen PG podcast? I, I can put the explicit <laughs> on it uh, if 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 we need to. It depends on. Depends on how far we go there, but I, I think if it's a if it's a good story, it's worth telling. Uh, well, I mean, I'll let you determine it. This this is the one that always stuck out to me because it, it literally had no bearing with basketball, and it might have some racial undertones as well. Okay, it it was shocking to me when it was said. Um, obviously, you know, Europe is still a little you know behind in terms of you know social you know equality and you know, how they view and talk and things like that. So I was in Greece. Um, I'm not going to say the teammate's name, but we had a teammate. We, we had a meeting with like three of us, right? And the coach. And the coach made reference to his lips, right? And he was like, he was like, how come you don't talk on defense? You have such big lips. It's like you could suck 10 men off right now. And I oh said, what in the, I'm sitting there like, 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 that's that's the only reference that you could think of? Right. <laughs> like, that's rough. He, he said that, right? I was like, oh, my gosh. And probably didn't bat an eyelash, too, and saw nothing no, he wrong didn't. with that. Yeah. He didn't. It, it was the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life, right? And he was trying to get him to talk on defense. That was the reference he made. And so, like, just stuff like that. And then, you know, just the way they talk, like, you must kill him. Like, you must kill this man. Kill this man. You know, the way they talk about playing defense. And, very serious. Yeah. yeah, very serious, especially in Greece. You know, they the basketball is a national sport. And so, you know, that was one thing that was like, wow, like, I couldn't believe that was said to me. And then obviously, like, full transparency, um, when I played my second stint in the UK, I actually was suspended for a game, believe it or not. Okay. Um, there was a game we were playing against the Glasgow Rocks. Glasgow's in, obviously, Scotland. And we had a game. It was actually, I can't remember what game it was for me, but I remember that in the game, this guy, I'm not going to say his name, but he kept elbowing me. And An American or? Uh, no, no, he's a Scottish Scot- player. Scottish, okay. Scottish player. He kept elbowing me. And I said, I said, look, stop elbowing me. Like in the middle of the game, I said, stop elbowing me. All right. And he elbowed me again. So, you know, I'm not going to blatantly elbow somebody, but I did a move that, you know, a lot of veterans used to talk about, like, so you you would hear veterans like Charles Oakley or guys, Michael Jordan, they would pump fake. And as you were coming down, they would leave with catch their elbows yeah. so they'd catch you. So, you know, I'm going off a screen and he's playing, he's denying me. So I do a swim move over the top, but I catch him across the chin. You know, it's not a blade, but it's a basketball movement, yeah. but I catch him. And so 
obviously he tries to fight me and, and you know, benches kind of clear and things like that. And then as the game is being finished, similar to what just happened with Russell Westbrook last night with uh, uh, Darius um, Brazley, uh, I think I said his name right, but when he dunked the ball when they were winning, we were up about May 15 or 20. I shot a three from deep. Catch it, right? They were so, they were hopping, man. And so, uh, you know, those that was just, that was the one on-court incident that was like, that I've ever been involved in. They they suspended me for one game, but they didn't he, did suspend he? anybody else. Yeah. And, and the referees, the referees didn't eject me. You know, nothing happened in the game. So, you know, obviously my team was trying to fight it because we had the BBL Cup Championship coming up, mm-hmm. which they suspended me for. Okay. You know, I, th- th- there's an article online about it if you if you look it up. Um, but, you know, I took it as a sign of respect that they thought I was such a factor that they would fight this hard to suspend me for a game, you know. And we played Glasgow, too, believe it or not, they, in the Cup Championship. You talk about, like, that's a that's a no-no in basketball, right, When you know, to show people up when you're up big late in the game. But yeah. you have a different consideration overseas, too. Some of these fan bases are wild. Like, yeah, I mean, you, you see full SWAT teams and riot gear and – batteries being thrown uh-huh. and things like that. Do you have any you kind of crazy experiences where, where fans were involved like that? Well, I mean, but but to go back to your point, right, even in, in FIBA basketball, you look at FIBA competition, you know, you look at the World Cup, you look at the Olympics, it's an aggregate score, right? So that that mindset, that, that unwritten rule doesn't really apply overseas okay. in most countries because if there's a tie between two teams, they're going to look at point difference. So you play until uh-huh. the final whistle, mm-hmm. you know, overseas. So that's why I was so surprised that they saw it as an issue. And with the, with the, with the Glasgow team, because, you know, you're, I've never seen that before because you play, 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 because at the end of the day, it comes down to aggregate score. In terms of myself, like the only time I've ever played in the league where the fans were like borderline unruly, or there was a chance of something happening was in Greece because you know, the fans, they, they live and breathe for their teams. Sure. Now, obviously, I never played for Olympiacos or Panathinaikos or one of those teams, but we had the fans were still our fans. Mm-hmm. They were light flares in the stands. I have a picture, like, with our fans, and you could just see the passion in their face. And the benches have plexiglass over it, similar to hockey style. So when, if and when they throw things, you know, they, they hit the plexiglass and they hit you. Now, once we get the other guys on here, and I don't want to speak for them. I want them to give you their experiences um, once we get the guys that played EuroLeague and things like that. Now, those games, like, that's a different level. You know, I wouldn't do it justice because I didn't personally experience that with fans throwing something at you, excuse me, or things like that. They have. They've had to go back into the locker room in the middle of the game because the fans have unscrewed chairs out of the cement seats, I mean, cement floors, to throw them on the court. Like, that's the extent that they're going to. And so, and stuff is on YouTube and everything, too. I know, I know James has some stories, so I'm looking yeah. forward to that one. Sticking with that theme about differences between here and there, like, you, you played for a, a good Division One school. It's a pretty good mm-hmm. setup. You have all the, like, equipment and, and things you need. Mm-hmm. Did you ever have to go without anything particularly major while playing overseas, whether it's without tape or without ice or Gatorade or, or any of those kind of things. See, Matt, this, this, this partnership here, this, this teamwork here is going to work really well because you're like pulling it. things out of me that I'm overlooking right now just because I've lived it. But these are things that I'm the point guard here. I got to set yeah. you up. You, no, you're you, the finisher. You, you're doing a great job. You're doing some great lobs right now. Good. And so, 
of course, you know, you, you play for Division One. you have training table, you have all of these things, you have all these amenities. You get overseas, you know, of course, they have what they call a physio. You know, every team has a physio, trainer, and things like that. But a lot of times, you know, you don't have what you need to go back home with. So you might have to use some frozen vegetables to ice your knees sometimes. You know, like that's not abnormal. You know, you might have to make a makeshift ice bath, you know, using a tub and some trash bags and, you know, go to the store and get some ice. Or like like for the guys that play in Italy or that live by the water, you go by the ocean, which is freezing cold in, during basketball season to that's rejuvenate right. your body. But at the end of the day, like at the end of the day, or, you, or guys invest in themselves. They buy Normatex. Mm. They buy um, game readies. Those type of things, you know, nowadays, now they have the hypervolt um, massage guns. We didn't have that or anything like that. Cryotherapy was, was not a concept when I was coming up, but I use it all the time. I'm going to do some today just to help my body recover. But, you know, obviously technology has, has increased dramatically and improved dramatically. But at the end of the day, to your point, it's on you to take care of your body. So the team, you can't go to the team and say, well, you guys don't have adequate training staff. That's why I can't perform the best of my ability. They'll send you right home. You know, they'll, they'll probably laugh at you and then send you home, you know? And so it's like, it's on you to take care of your body. And going back to the point I made earlier, nobody's going to care about your career as much as you. So you have to do what it takes to be successful in that. And so if that means, you know, you know, putting frozen vegetables on your knees and ankles and or making a makeshift foot tub to soak your feet, to get to recover and things like that, you have to do that. I've heard some wild stuff over the years, like a player uh, sprained an MCL and they wanted to use like basically like training tape to tape his knee up and uh, or bleach in a cut and like crazy yeah. stuff that, you know, like is not good medical science now, but, you know, 15 years ago in a place where they didn't put as much emphasis on that kind of stuff, um, they, it just seemed normal to them. Well, you see guys with all the disfigured, even in NBA, you see former NBA guys, like their hands are, you know, destroyed. Google Shaq's feet if you ever want to, yeah. like, lose your lunch. But, but you know, like to that point, you know, guys weren't getting pedicures, guys weren't getting massages, you know, guys weren't really taking care of themselves to the point where they are now. And the older guys, they call call us prima donnas and they call us, you know, all these different, you know, they, they put all these labels on us, but. I'd rather be a prima donna than than be dismembered. I'm not dismembered, but have be disfigured and things like that. You know, their their hands are terrible. Like I remember, I was playing in Portugal, and the the injury happened to me in college, which is why I knew how to treat it. So I was in college, and I had what was called um, a hammer finger, right? Mm. So where you go up, and it doesn't hurt at all. Like I went up for a rebound, the ball hit me directly on top of my pinky, and my finger just went like this, right? It was a hook. And I would try to push it up. It would go up, but then it would go right back down. No, mallet finger. I'm sorry. It's called mallet finger. So I told the coach, I said, I got to come out. Man, something's not right. So I went to my trainer. He said, all right, we're going to splint it. Because if we don't splint it like this, then you're going to have this for the rest of your life. So I was like, look, do, do what you got to do. So I was out for a few weeks. But fast forward to Portugal, the same thing happened with my middle finger on my shooting hand, my right hand. Same thing. I went for a steal. The ball hit me right here. Mallet finger. The team thought I was joking. Yep. Like they thought I was lying. I went to the, as soon as it happened, I ran to the training room. We actually had a really good training staff there. And I told her exactly what happened. I told her what needed to be done, splint it, keep it like this. And they thought I was, I was making up an injury because there was no, there was no like breaks or ligament damage or anything. 
Mm-hmm. And they gave me an MRI and all that stuff. And the MRIs were showing no structural damage. And so they thought I was healthy to play. But I'm like, I know what this injury is. So to that point, I was like, look, I know what's best for me in my career and my life. I'm not walking around with the with the mallet, with the hook in my middle finger yeah. for this team. You know, straight up. I appreciate the opportunity and everything, but you know, I'm not going through that. That hit close to home. My my middle finger on my dominant hand. I can't bend that finger very far because I did not uh-huh. go do the uh, the proper precautions there and waited too long to do PT and stuff like that. So it, yeah, it, like you said, you got to invest in yourself and, and be smart about those things too. You have I mean, to. You have to. And don't let them gas you up. You know, you can't let them make you think like, oh, because at the end of the day, you're replaceable. Sure. Straight up. You see it all the time. If you don't perform, they're sending you home. They can be buddy buddy with you. They can be fans of yours, they can tell you all these great things about yourself, but at, at, at the end of the day, they're adhering to their constituents, to their fan base, and they need to put a product out there that they're pleased with to the sponsors and to the fan base. So if they don't, like, you're expendable, so you need to, and, and it sounds selfish, but at the end of the day, you have to do what you have to do for your career. So I tell players this all the time, get your numbers. Get your numbers, take care of yourself first and foremost. Winning, and this is a concept that is so taboo within sports because you're taught you play the game to win. Once your livelihood is contingent upon you playing, winning is secondary. You see it all the time in the NBA. And of course, when they come out and say it, they come out and say, you know, we want to win a championship. That's my goal. But that's because they're secure financially. When When they're trying to make that that try to get that financial security and make that second, third contract, max contract, they're doing what they have to do to get that. You know, you, that's why it's hard for teams to repeat because the, the role players are getting bigger contracts. I don't care about coming back and trying to win a championship. I have a family that's going to far outlive me playing this game. Mm-hmm. And so that's a concept that I understood early and that a lot of players, it's hard for them to understand because we've been conditioned. Like going back to the mental part of the game, we've been conditioned to think, you know, run through the wall for this team. You know, do what you have to do for for the betterment of the team. Not knowing that if you don't put, if you don't perform, the team is already recruiting over you right and now. They got a plane ticket for you. You know what I'm saying? It's nothing. So you know, you have to do what's best for you. To to close this out here, I got a couple of let's say quick hitters for you, I guess. So, any fun hobbies or foods you picked up in a particular overseas country that like you still do or you still like to mm-hmm. eat or, you know, something that was new to you in, in one of these countries that stuck with you? Uh, I mean, obviously the travel part, you know, you get to travel, you know, in sightseeing, getting appreciation for culture and, and different things that you didn't even know, know existed, you know, but um, if I were to pinpoint it, uh, a food, sorry for the dramatic pause. I'm trying to be accurate here. You craving um, any uh, pickled fish or anything from Denmark? Or? <laughs> no, not at all. Actually, the food in Denmark was interesting because one of the things on the menu at one of the restaurants I used to go to was kangaroo rump. Okay. Yeah, What's that? It's, 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 it's exactly what it is. It's the rump of a kangaroo. Wow. And so, yeah. And so uh, that was that was in Denmark. Honestly, like I cooked a lot when I was overseas. Sure. So like I cooked a whole lot. I'm not really adventurous food-wise. Especially in China, I definitely wasn't adventurous just because I didn't know what I was eating. And then, you know, I was kind of spoiled in Shanghai because they had everything we have here. And then some. Um, but um, but well, one thing I did pick up was language. 
that's that's one thing. I have an appreciation for language. I picked up a good amount of Mandarin, good amount of Greek, a good amount of German. Um, Danish was so hard. Like I only know a few. Like I know. Thank you. That's it. You know. But um, but I picked up a good amount of, and obviously I took Spanish all through school. So the Spanish speaking countries that was pretty easy to talk to. But but the language though, yeah. And so and understanding, especially in China, because that's the that was the place I spent the most. So if I would to answer your question, it would be language, because then like when I'm here and I hear Chinese people talking, I understand exactly what they mean. You know, it's 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 just, it's interesting to be sitting as a fly on the wall, proverbial fly on the wall, and just being able to understand what and people are ex- saying. They don't expect it especially when they don't expect you to understand. So, and they, they're so shocked when I say something back to them, you know, they, they laugh and, you know, but, but that's another way to ingratiate yourself yeah. to the, the place that you're in. Once they see that you're trying to adopt their culture, oh, the people will love you. They'll do anything they can to help you. I've heard that from guys like come in with at least just like a couple of basic phrases that show you've put in yeah. some effort to, to kind of, you know, fit in yeah. with the culture there. Cause they'll love, they'll love you. You know, they'll love you. They'll embrace you. And cause you're showing that you're embracing their culture and that's, a, that's a way to really help yourself adjust as well as, you know, um, help you stay with the team. If you, if you want to. If you had to give one piece of advice, then obviously you can point people to the book here too. There's a whole uh-huh. lot of good advice, but if you just had to pick like one crucial thing that you hope somebody listening to this takes away from this about starting an overseas career, what would that be? You have to love basketball. You have to love basketball. You can't be going out there for the lifestyle, the money, any of that. Mm-hmm. If you don't love basketball, playing ball overseas, you are going to be miserable no matter how much money you make. Because like I said before, for most guys, the basketball part is the easiest part. It's the highlight of your day. Sure. So you're going out there and if you don't love practice, you don't love shoot arounds because the shoot arounds are intense in most countries if you play at a high level. And so tape shoot arounds, those type of things. Um, you have to love basketball. You have to love the game. You have to love practices. You have to love all of that stuff about the game because there are going to be so many things off the court that are going to be uncomfortable, that are, that are going to be tough and tedious, but you have to go back to why you're there. And that love is going to trump that the uncomfortableness and empowers the, you through the tough yeah stuff. The, the, the discomfort you know and empowers you through it so the better you love the game the more you love the game the easier it is for you to transition to play ball overseas uh that's awesome best country for in terms of quality of life for an american of the ones that you played in oh for sure denmark germany mm-hmm. because well if i were to say one is germany Okay. Germany is regarded pound for pound as the best market to play in. One, financial security, you know, you're going to get paid on time and in full. You know, and then obviously, you know, they they take care of everything off the court. You know, I think they just have a really good quality of life there. And then for me personally, the best places that I've played, you know, aside from not getting paid was Athens, Greece and Shanghai, China. I mean, obviously the two major international cities. Um, but I just I loved it. It was like every day was like you're in a museum outside. You're just walking around. You're seeing all of this history and things like that and you know for me those are my two favorite places but Denmark is a close a close second to those two which are tied at the top as somebody who has not been outside of uh, this hemisphere uh, mm-hmm. I'm definitely uh, definitely jealous of that so ever get really lost in a new city you know where where you had some travel related issues 
I, I was never my survival skills are on a hundred. Like so, I, I'm big on picking up landmarks. Sure. Yeah, you know, I, I put out landmarks so I know where I'm going. And for me, I always I embrace being the dumb American. So I always embrace being. You know, if I don't know something, I always pretend, hey, I'm American. I don't know. You know, so and and people help you. They'll point you in the right direction. I take screenshots. I take pictures of things. So in case I do get lost or I lose my lose my bearings, lose my way, I can show somebody and they'll point me in the right direction. The part of the craziest story that I have being overseas in terms of just like going on an adventure was when the all black second Yeezys came out. I was in Czech, I was in the Czech Republic and I wanted these shoes so bad. I had some, I had a day off. So I took a train to Prague. It was a three-hour train ride, bought a train ride ticket. I get off the train. I have no idea how to get to this place. I like I took a screenshot of the store name, but I didn't have Google Maps. I didn't have any phone service, nothing, you know. And so I got off the plane. I mean, off the train, and I'm seeing people that look like they might be going to the shoe store, but I'm not sure. So I just start following them. I, I start following them, and then you know, as I'm walking, you know, I'm asking people along the road, you know, where's this place? pointing to the picture and they end up, you know, they were actually going to the shoe store. So, you know, just being, just being cerebral, just using instincts and, and things like that will help you be overseas. But sometimes it's good to get lost, you know, you know, you, you find things that you never would have seen before. And, you know, the being lost isn't a concept that's not, that's necessarily not bad. Yeah. It forces you to kind of um, broaden your horizons a little bit, I guess, or, or, or try some stuff you wouldn't otherwise. Any shows that you watched over there that that killed a lot of time? Like this was your go-to show to eat up some hours while you're overseas. I watched Twenty Four. Okay, Twenty Four. Um, obviously, that that series every season is twenty four episodes. Sure. So you know, it took me like three. It took me three years to get through that series. <laughs> um, I started watching The Wire. I never watched it before, but I started watching that because I had time on my hands and um. Like those two shows, were, those were the ones that really stuck out to me was 24 and The Wire. Prison Break, too. There you go. That's a good yeah. one. All three good ones. Any book or movie recommendation that you would give to folks? Just could be about um, anything. Movie recommendation. Uh, in terms of basketball-related movies or just... Just like, whatever. Just, just, just something you would you think would be good for, for folks to catch if they haven't yet. Huh. I'm a doc. I'm a documentary person. Okay. So I'm really big on documentaries. I'm big on, so, you know, obviously 30 for thirties, like those 30 for thirties. I always learn something from them. ESPN 30 for thirties. Even if it's, if, if it's a sport that I've never played before or never even watched, you know, those I always get something from there. So like 30 for 30, especially the broke one, you know, they went through all the, the ups and downs of making money, losing money, the the trappings of being a professional athlete and things like that. You were talking about 30 for 30s. While I was at Maryland, at, they let student media come to premiere of the Len Bias documentary. They did it on oh, campus. Wow. And I was sitting second row. And you don't really know who's in this dark theater around you. And halfway mm-hmm. through this documentary, it's called Without Bias. If anybody hasn't seen it, it's worth a watch. I just hear hysterical crying. And I realized that Len Myers' mom is sitting directly in the seat in front of me. Oh, and that wow. was like the most intense sort of movie going experience I, I've ever had. I mean, it was it was wild just to like see her relive that. So that that's one worth um worth checking out yeah, for, for uh, any all the 30, Yeah, the 30 for 30, especially the Len Byers one. Um 
they also did one with uh with Benji um from the Wilson, yeah. Benji Wilson, yeah, from from Chicago. Um, you know, they, they do a great job with their docuseries. And so um, you know, I'm actually in the pitch phase for my own docuseries regarding the overseas basketball experience. So, you know, be on the lookout for that. But you guys will be hearing more about that as we continue our episodes. And you know, you know, what what Matt and I are doing here is just giving fans, audiences, the perspective of what it's like playing over there, giving them knowledge, giving them, you know, perspective about like what it's like to be over there, how guys and girls are managing their time, how they're managing their lives and families um, while being overseas and just giving the entire, you know, synopsis of what it's like to be a basketball player overseas and live in another country. We've already been brainstorming about guys to get. So, uh, Folks, you can expect to hear about some college All-Americans, maybe some yeah. former NBA champions, um, some some big-time EuroLeague players, some For major sure. March Madness stars, all, all kinds of things. But if one, if you're listening to this and you have a suggestion on somebody you'd like to hear from, let us know. Or two, if you are a player overseas, mm-hmm. you know, and and you want an opportunity to tell your story, like reach out and we'll uh, we'll, we'll see what we can work out there. So I think. Uh, we got a lot of good stuff ahead for people here, Mike. And, I, and I'm going to lean on all of my friends who I'm expecting you guys to listen to this in its entirety. There so you if, you, if you haven't gotten to that part, we have another issue. But I'm going to be leaning on my friends that, that I know that I know your personal stories within basketball. So I know you guys have a lot to offer. Um, you know, it would be great, you know, especially on this platform. You guys trust me. You guys know what we're about. So, you know, it'd be great to have, you know, guys that, that I played with that I that I know off the court to to be on here, share their stories and just give and make people know about their journey as a professional basketball player overseas. And we will try not to make all of these two hours for people so that you can get through <laughs> them. If we do, we'll split them into, uh, you know, into multiple parts. parts. But yeah. figured it was uh, it was good to be thorough and, and comprehensive here and, and let people know what you know, Mike, that you've lived through and, and that's why you're, you know, well positioned to kind of help uh, tease these stories out from, from other people too. No, hundred percent, Matt. You know, I'm looking forward to this journey that we're going to be on sharing these international basketball stories for the men and women that have been doing it at the highest level that have been relatively unknown and uncovered. So um, after they finish playing here in the States, so it'd be good to bring, bring light, give light to these, these players and, and let them share their stories through our platform this will be available uh on all podcast platforms maybe we'll figure out some uh some youtube along the way here too for for Mm -hmm. people to check it out whatever format they'd like but uh, you hear this on every podcast and and there's a reason it's because it actually is meaningful uh we would love a five-star review on on itunes if you're willing to do it if you don't think we deserve five stars let us know what we can do better uh we're we're happy to try to, to do that and make this a valuable experience for everybody listening but Rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend. I think this is one of those things that, you know, um, the more the word of mouth spreads, the better we'll be able to get better guests and interviews and things like that. So uh, we're relying on you guys, the listeners, to to help us grow this thing. 100%. And I'm I'm telling you guys, I'm coming for you guys. I'm going to be in your DMs. I'm texting, FaceTiming. To get you guys on board because we we need need you guys on here because it's not only going to help yourselves but it's going to help the industry as a whole to 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 make players and, and coaches and ages more comfortable about getting into this industry beautifully said partner uh all right stay tuned everybody we've got big things coming for you this has been ball movement and uh we'll check you guys soon 
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.